This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Why did a private jet leaving Martha's Vineyard crash into the sea, leaving only two survivors? Before the Fall takes an unexpected turn in the hands of its author, Noah Hawley. You know, you solve the characters, you solve the mystery, and the danger with writing a thriller is always that the plot takes over and you're just running for the last act. How do you pull together 25 years of brilliant travel writing and foreign reportage? Andrew Solomon is here to talk about Far and Away, a collection of his writing filed from around the world. It is to me really a plea for greater inclusion, a plea against xenophobia, a plea toward internationalism, a lot of things that suddenly seem urgent in the national debate. And what's the best YA for summer? Our reviewer Marjorie Ingle read through enough young adult novels to keep you busy until school starts. It has every attribute of a book I would not want to read, and it is so, so, so good. We'll also take a look at the books that we and other people are reading. And now a question for you, our listeners. We want to hear about a formative summer book from your past. Send us a voice memo telling us about a book you read during the summer. How old were you when you read it? Where were you? How did the book affect you? Keep your story to 30 seconds or less. I know that's hard. And make sure to tell us your full name, where you live, and the title and author of the book. Send your story to podcasts at nytimes.com, and we may use your story in a future episode. In this week's issue, we review a new thriller that people are already saying might be the big thriller of the summer. The book is called Before the Fall, and it has a great premise, starting with a jet, a private jet, leaving Martha's Vineyard, a terrible crash, only two survivors, and then a whodunit reconstruction of what happened aboard that plane. The book is called Before the Fall. It's the fifth novel by Noah Hawley, and he joins us now to talk about it. Thanks for having me. All right, so you are not only the author of this new novel, which is reviewed in um, the book review this week by Kristen Hanna, but you also do something far more glamorous, uh, which is you're the creator, producer, writer, showrunner for the TV series Fargo. Correct. Yes, it's glamorous when we're up in Calgary in northern Alberta and it's 40 degrees below zero. But yeah, that's that's my day job, I suppose you could call it. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you make that division. Like, is that your day job and this is like your fun thing or this is your calling and that's your paycheck or how do you kind of... I mean, it's all storytelling on some level. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I started as a novelist and then my motto is what else can I get away with? So, you know, I I wrote a feature script and then sort of segued into, into TV work. And Fargo is my third show. I did two for ABC before. What were the shows? Uh, one was called The Unusuals um, with Jeremy Renner, and then and then I did a show called My Generation that was a fake documentary uh, drama. So, and then this show on on FX. But I'd written half of this book before Fargo got picked up, and it sat in a drawer until we started winning awards for Fargo, and then my agent blew the dust off and sent it out, and and then I had to finish it while we were shooting the second uh, season. So it's been a crazy uh, last two years. Well, we're not going to go into what the ending is. I, I promise listeners I'm not going to do any spoilers. Um, but I'm just curious, did you know what the ending would be before you started? Or did, did you kind not. of figure that out as you went along? Yeah, in this case, you know, with, for the, with the filmed uh, entertainment, it helps, especially with Fargo, which is, has a beginning, middle, and end, but everything needs to be laid in exactly uh, so that it seems accidental and random. With fiction, I do find that it, I don't really want to know the end like 
because the internal states of the characters informs the decisions that get made, et cetera. So it wasn't until I was about halfway through that I really realized how how to end it precisely. And it's an interesting story not to know the ending of because of the way in which it's told. You kind of you start with the with the crash right. of an airplane. Why don't you just sort of set the scene uh, for those who haven't read the book? Sure. It's an August night and, and uh, a private plane is flying back from Martha's Vineyard uh, to the city and it's been chartered by a man named David Bateman, who's the CEO of a conservative news network. Um, much like we would the, never know what that would be. No, we we wouldn't. But um, he's flying back with his wife and two kids, and he's invited on uh, a, a sort of acquaintance who's a hedge fund manager who we learn later is about to be indicted for money laundering. And and anyway, at the last minute, this painter, this local painter who uh, the CEO's wife invited on, makes it onto the plane, and they take off and they land. They crash into the into the sound, into the Atlantic. And the painter and the four-year-old boy of the CEO are the only survivors. And so the painter has to swim to shore. And then we follow him in his story and his survival um, story as he interacts with, you know, suddenly a media, you know, a hero on some level. And then also go back in time to the lives of all the other people who are on the plane who are normally just names on a list and sort of try to solve the mystery of why the plane crashed by exploring who these people were. So you have this kind of like character by character reconstruction of sort of how they got up to the point of that aircraft. Right. And so you can show little different views of the same moment and maybe go a little deeper each time you tell the story and get somebody onto the plane. Maybe you go a little farther. You see a detail that you hadn't seen before, but always viewed through that person's Kind of that Rashomon thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, it was funny as I was reading the book, and I mean this in a very good way, I thought this feels like really great TV. (laughs) Like, did you feel like your your television writing skills were helped with the storytelling or how did that? I think so. I I mean, I think that it's about, I mean, one of the things that, that I try to do with um, with the show is to always be aware of the audience's expectations. Mm-hmm. What, what are they thinking right now? What do they want to happen? And then to either give them what they want or not, but, but to always have a good reason if you're not going to. And so a lot of the balance here was we have this main drive, the story of, of a man and a, and a child, basically, and, um, and who's going to take care of this child who's now inherited a lot of money and, and, uh, and are, you know, this painter, what are his real motives? And, and then also these backstories of these different characters. And you don't want to be gone from your main narrative too long. You don't want to lose the drive of that. So a lot of it was about trying to tell enough of these people's stories, but never to go so far down a rabbit Not hole. Not to lose the pacing. Yeah, yes. yeah, that, that, the, that the audience, the reader starts to feel like a little lost or the momentum starts to lag. It's also a tricky balance, I would think, between, you know, not being manipulative in terms of that fulfillment versus withholding. Like, I'm going to give you enough, to, but not quite enough right. for now. And Well, and there are elements, too. There's a story that's that's uh, discussed of the, you know, that at a certain point years earlier, the CEO's daughter had been kidnapped when she was two. And, you know, at first that story is teased at, and then we see the beginning of that story, and then we get a sense of how it played out. But we never tell you the, the entire story of that because that's not what our main story is. And, you know, we know she was recovered and and we we know enough of the details. But so, you know, for me, it's about providing enough of those those colors that the audience can kind of paint it themselves. 
Also, uh, you depict a couple of uh, different worlds um, within the story so that it's sort of not just the thriller and a kind of that whodunit pace uh, and storytelling, but also about this conservative news anchor and that whole world and about the world of hedge funds. Were those areas of interest that you kind of wanted to explore? Yeah, I mean, it's it's never my goal to write a thriller, quote unquote. I mean, I guess I would call it an emotional thriller in that, you know, you solve the characters, you solve the mystery. And the danger with writing a thriller is always that the plot takes over and you're just running for the last act without, you know, the characters being able to really drive the story on Mm -hmm. some level. So that's always my feeling is is how do you uh, create a story that has enough in it, enough ideas, enough interesting characters. and, And, you know, so to explore that world, basically of money and media and, you know, in a way that hopefully is not cliche, but but is actually looking at the impact of, you know, what does it mean to have hundreds of millions of dollars and, and how do you end up out of touch with the rest of the world? And then how is that brought into harsh relief, you know, by bringing on this this guy, this painter, Scott Burroughs, who's basically failed at life and suddenly finds himself thrown into this world? You know, as we see, from our from our election cycle, I mean, money is really driving the American conversation right now. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's hard to believe that it was in a drawer for. It couldn't have been that long because it feels very much of the moment. Did you do like a lot of updating, or was that all in there? No, it's. I mean, the, those characters were set at that point. I mean, certainly since two thousand eight, we've been having this conversation. It's been building to this moment. I think about the haves and the have-nots, and and. You know, my goal was never to create black hats on one hand and white hats on the other. And I think one of the things I'm proudest of is that, you know, these are all three-dimensional characters and the CEO of the conservative news network, he loves his kids, he loves his wife, you know, and and he does what he does for a living. But we're not going to create a caricature of him, you know, because it's, uh, it's tragic what happened. Again, I'm not wanting to give the plot details away. Um, the book, again, is Before the Fall. I don't want to ask too much specifically about this, but a, a larger question, again, about that TV writing versus novel writing. What feels sort of different and special to you about working on a novel like this that you sort of don't get out of the the more glamorous world of, of television? The difference in doing it what I consider a 10-hour movie, which is what Fargo sort of is, is that, you know, you're not trapped in this cycle of it's got to run for 10 years, so you're just repeating yourself over and over again, and it's also not a two-hour movie where everything is plot. But, you know, there is something special about fiction because really the reader does half the work, right? You 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 put the words on paper, but the story, the vision of, of this is, is done in the reader's imagination, and I think that's something that's that's unique to the written word and and certainly to watch something on TV or on the screen is a more passive experience and you know I try to make the show force the audience to use their imagination as well by creating you know by writing it the way that we write it etc but but that idea that that you know you can weave the story together and then the reader takes it where they want to take it so do you have another half written novel in your drawer? I wish I had one. No, I don't I don't have another half written one now. I've sort of run out of time between things. Um but you know, it's exciting to think about and and you know, I mean this is my fifth book. Yeah, and, I was gonna and, say, is it is it different from the the previous books? Yeah, the last book was um called The Good Father and and it was the story of a doctor who was on a second marriage and there was a assassination of a presidential candidate and 
there was a knock on his door and the son from his first marriage had been arrested and he goes on a journey to try to prove his son innocent. And it's sort of an emotional thriller on the same level that had a certain starts with a kind of topical bang and then mm-hmm. becomes a character driven story. But the books before that weren't weren't really similar creatively. Um, but you know, that's I tend to believe that the structure of a story should reflect the content of a story. So Depending on what the story is, it should be told in a different way. Are there movie rights already sold? Yeah, well, I sold it to Sony, and they've hired me to adapt it. So that's a process I'm I'm about to launch into of of telling the story again for a different medium, uh, which uh, I'm sure will be exciting. All right, more to look forward to. I'm just I feel like I should give a listener warning that if you are going to read before the fall, that you do so after eliminating sort of all other obligations from your life so you can, you know, get get straight through it to the ending. Noah, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. The book again is Before the Fall by Noah Hawley and it's reviewed in our summer reading issue by Kristen Hanna. For decades, Andrew Solomon has written dispatches from many tough places from around the world, the former Soviet Union, Afghanistan, Rwanda, and North Africa, to name a few. Andrew is what I think we can call at this point a frequent guest on the podcast, or at least a favorite. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to have you. Um, Your new book is Far and Away, Reporting from the Brink of Change, Seven Continents, 25 Years, and it's a big book. Was this long in the works? Because you're also writing another book, and your most recent book sort of feels like it just came out far from the tree, although I guess it's been three years? It's been three years, It's been three years. Nonetheless, this feels like a lot of of work to have uh, done in that intervening period. And a lot of this was previously written. A lot of it was previously rewritten, but I did extensive rewriting to bring the voice together. I did new introductions and epilogues to each story. I had written these stories over a period of time, and they were out there, and then they began to feel really urgent because we seem to be in such a xenophobic moment, Mm -hmm. and while I wouldn't have timed the book to come out during this election season, it is to me really a plea for greater inclusion, a plea against xenophobia, a plea toward internationalism, a lot of things that suddenly seem urgent in the national debate. So it was a long, slow process and then a quick one. And then it must tie into your work with Penn as well. It ties very deeply into the work with Penn. We've looked so much at freedom of expression issues, which are really ultimately issues of freedom. And part of the role of the book is to look around the world. I was in Afghanistan during the invasion. I was in Moscow during the fall of the Soviet Union. I was in Myanmar for the first free elections. And to see what is freedom and how does it occur and what are the things that block it and what does it look like when it arrives. I just want to mention, as long as we are talking about Penn, um, that you had some good news last week. Was it last week or two weeks ago with Penn and that the honoree, not of this year's Freedom of Expression Award, but last year's, was freed... Khadija Ismailova was freed in Azerbaijan. We had been lobbying very hard for her release. She was supposed to be in jail for a good while longer, and we were incredibly thrilled that she was um, she was released. A lot of the people we've given awards to have said that even in the period before they're released, the knowledge that there is this international attention gives them strength. And it often also means that their jailers treat them a little bit better. And actually, of the 38 people who've received the award we gave to her, 34 of those jailed writers have been released. So it's incredibly gratifying when you feel like you've stirred up a lot of public interest in something and it's actually made a difference. Well, now we'll sadly turn to grimmer uh, (laughs) 
places. Um, you start the book off in the USSR. This is you've already written a book about the former Soviet Union, correct? And my first book was about a group of Soviet artists and how their lives changed during Glasnost. And so was this from that same period or was the, were these pieces written after that? The first piece was from that same period, and the others are what happened in the years immediately following. I had finished the book. It was about this group of artists, and then I went back to have a quiet visit with them now that I was done writing about them in the summer of 1991. And then the putsch happened in which the Soviet Union came to an end, and those artists were involved in the resistance against the right-wing extremists, and I got swept into their world and their lives, and that project I thought was finished took on a whole new life. And that happened while you were there? That happened while I was there, wow. just by happenstance. So, and I ended up with the artists on the barricades standing up against the tank, something I had not expected at that point in my career. And you were writing that for the New York Times Magazine or for Condé Nast Travel and Leisure Magazine? Who was that first piece for? Well, the first piece was for Harper's and Queen in okay. England because I was living in London and writing on the arts for them. The next piece, however, after I'd been there through the coup and through the resistance, I got in touch with the New York Times Magazine, and it was how I first came to this publication. They oh, wow. took a piece. And so when you were figuring out how to organize this, did you is it chronological or is there another organizing scheme? How did you decide to order the pieces in the I tried collection? various things, but I ultimately settled on the chronological because I think they're kind of cute. Cumulative, cumulative in two ways, in that even the things that happened in China 10 years after the coup in Moscow drew in some measure from that history. And also because I think I, as a writer, was developing a point of view and that it flows more smoothly chronologically. I'm going to um, selfishly home in on a few uh, dispatches from countries that interest me. Um, <laughs> at Turkey, you have an essay uh, called Sailing to Byzantium. What's that about? That was the first piece I did for Travel and Leisure. The structure of the book is that it consists about two-thirds of kind of intense political reporting and about one-third of delighted touristic reporting. I had been very depressed, subject of another one of my books. I was asked by Travel There's and no Leisure. no big revelation there. <laughs> I was asked by Travel and Leisure to write a piece about sailing in Turkey. And I went with a bunch of people who had organized a sailing expedition were commercially available. And I found that while the most obvious cures for depression are medication and psychotherapy, that actually going someplace unbelievably beautiful in bright sunshine with people you like also has a strong curative <laughs> effect. So that was a happy experience. Very. And then on to, I think I'm going to assume, a grimmer topic. Um, you have an essay in here on Cambodia. In Cambodia, I was interested in the uh, question of depression among survivors of the Khmer Rouge. And I met this remarkable, remarkable woman who was working with um, uh, people. She had been herself the victim of atrocities during that period, had ended up in a refugee camp, had realized that there were many women in that refugee camp who weren't functioning and had gone to the heads of the camp and said, we have to do something. And they said, we're so occupied with infectious diseases, we can't deal with this. And so she began to deal with it and came up with an extraordinary intervention in which she taught them, in her own words, first to forget then to work, and then to do manicures and pedicures. Oh, yes, I remember this piece. So this, when, when were you there, and, when, and where was this published? Uh, I was there in 1998, mm -hmm. I believe, and uh, there was a version of it published in The Noonday Demon, but it's expanded and changed here. Okay, and then I'm going to skip to um, Afghanistan, because you mentioned that uh, earlier, an awakening after the Taliban 
there's a kind of theme here in that you often go to places sort of in the immediate aftermath of these tragedies. Yes, to try to see what the nature of resilience is. I had been so frightened by 9-11, and I wanted to understand the place that we were suddenly attacking and invading. And I went to Afghanistan thinking it would be a real hardship visit, but interesting. And I fell in love with Afghanistan. I went to write about the rebirth of culture following the fall of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And I had many remarkable experiences, but in a way, it's a trivial one that particularly stands out. I had bought one of those little fur hats, like the ones that Karzai wears, Mm -hmm. and I was walking back through a crowded market with my translator. And at that point, most of the Westerners in Afghanistan were either UN or military and weren't allowed to walk in public places. And as I walked through, my translator said, put on your hat. And I said, oh, I think it would look silly. And he said, no, come on, put on the hat. (laughs) So I put on the hat, and suddenly all around me, everyone burst into applause. And someone stepped forward and said... You are an American, but you are in Afghanistan. You have come to see us. You are wearing a real Afghan hat. You are walking in the market with us. We want you to know you are welcome here. All right. I also want to ask about Antarctica, um, because, again, speaking of The New Yorker, just read that, that great essay by Jonathan Franzen about taking a, uh, a cruise to Antarctica. I had just as bad a time as he did, but for different reasons. Hotel. <laughs> we set off on a ship um, to go for a month to Antarctica and to visit the site where Shackleton had landed. It was a Shackleton memorial voyage. Of course, Shackleton is famous for not getting where he intended to go, and that's what happened to us. We got frozen in the sea ice. Oh, no. We made it most of the way, and then we were stuck there for three weeks. And oh, my God. time of complete – I mean, everyone was going crazy. It was unbelievable believably, almost unbearably beautiful. The landscape of ice, the continent we could see in the distance, the huge icebergs, the strange colors of the light, the midnight sun. But it was also the most frustrating experience of my life. And so fitting to get stuck in Antarctica (laughs) reporting on Shackleton. Were there any pieces in here that were difficult to return to? There were many of them that were difficult to return to just because there's been so much history since then. But I felt in looking particularly at the piece on South Africa and the end of apartheid um, that it was really striking to me that that was one place where the vision of hope we'd had had sort of come true. I mean, there are problems with the ANC, but Mm -hmm. South Africa is a lot better than it used to be. On the other hand, I looked at the piece on Libya, for example, and I had thought if they could only get rid of Gaddafi, there would be a brave, just society to emerge in its wake. And returning to that piece and returning to the hope that was buried in it, I was aware of how horribly wrong things have gone there, and it made me very sad. Let's just talk also about Myanmar, um, which is, I still hesitate to use that word because uh, it, it used to be a sort of political decision, whether you would call it Burma or call it Myanmar, but it seems like everyone, I guess the accepted name now is Myanmar. What was it like to be there? It's an unbelievably beautiful country, and I had remarkable encounters with the people I met there. I was working both on a piece for Travel and Leisure and on this essay, and I was working for Penn, and we just established a center there. I talked to a lot of writers who had recently been jailed um, or who had recently been released from jail and heard their stories. One of the ones that stays with me was of someone called Ma Thanagi, 
And I said to her, what was it like when you went to jail? She had been imprisoned for being Aung San Suu Kyi's personal assistant. And she said, I had the most wonderful time. Hmm. And I said, you had a wonderful time in a Burmese jail? And she said, the purpose of the government was to make us miserable by putting us there. And if we could be happy there, then their mission had failed and we were the triumphant ones. And she described this happiness as a matter both of political will and of personal determination. And she said, you can't imagine how close I am to my jailbird friends, some of whom were in for things like prostitution. They weren't mm -hmm. all in for political reasons. She said, we just decided to have fun and we did it. Well, that's a very uh, a surprisingly happy take on imprisonment. <laughs> when you say that you went back and you um, reworked a lot of these essays, did you update them? And or, you know, how did you decide sort of where to kind of leave them in that moment and, and where to bring them forward to today? The essays themselves stay in the moment they were in, mm -hmm. but I wrote an introduction and an epilogue for each one to contextualize it in the present. What I changed in reworking them were places where I thought they were rambling or where they had gotten mutilated in editing. Um, but I also tried to uh, to ensure that what was in them was really true to the experience at that time, but that it was comprehensible how it could have led to the reality of this one. I'm curious, too, when, when you were writing this, did you sort of consciously think of this as something you were intending the reader to go through from beginning to end and sort of follow that chronology? Or did you think of them each as kind of standing, you know, alone within the collection? I think each of them stands alone, but I think it's in reading them together that you get the larger message that in this era in which we live, circling the wagons is not only um, is not only impossible, but also undesirable, mm -hmm. that we live in a globalized world, that we have to engage with that world, and that while there's a great deal that is accomplished through great depth of knowledge, you know, Sinologists on China or Kremlinologists on the Soviet Union or on contemporary Russia, that actually there's a lot of wisdom that comes from breadth of knowledge too. And while I think each of the essays goes pretty deep in its place, mm -hmm. I think together they add up to a vision of how do we all live on this planet together? So if somebody were going to cheat and to dip in and out of this, do you have favorite pieces in here? I love the South Africa piece. I love the Moscow Putsch piece. I really like the Mongolia piece because Mongolia was just so unbelievably beautiful. Um, I like the Rio piece, which was about the, um, uh, the way that class tensions were unfolding around the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. That might be too many. And the Afghanistan piece, that's very close to my heart. Um, and then last question, when you were working on this, was there one place in particular that you were reading about as you uh, returned to it and thought, I, I need to go back there? Oh, I thought that about every place as I went along <laughs> from place to place. I had a real sense of reconnecting with Ghana, which I wrote about. I would love to go back to Afghanistan if it weren't so dangerous. I wept, as I said, for um, for Libya. And Mongolia and Greenland are the two most beautiful places I've ever been, and I would give anything to go back to them. All right. Summer travel recommendations also from Andrew Solomon. Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, Pamela. What a joy. The book, again, is Far and Away, Reporting from the Brink of Change, Seven Continents, 25 Years, and it's reviewed this week in our summer reading issue. For our summer reading issue, Marjorie Engel read a bunch of the latest YA, and she joins us, along with Maria Russo, our children's books editor, to talk about this summer's best. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thanks Hi, for family. having me. 
So, Marjorie, you reviewed eight books this week in the summer reading issue, um, eight YA books. We'll talk about those and also about some other YA that we think might be of interest to listeners this summer. And I want to quickly mention, you also have a book of your own coming out soon, Mamala Knows Best. (laughs) Yes. Marjorie, you reviewed eight books uh, in the issue, um, but I think we sent you 15, so we'll talk a little bit about some of the runners up. Um, But which of the ones you reviewed was your favorite? My favorite, against all odds, was The Passion of Dulce, which is 500 pages and set in the 13th century in, uh, you know, vintage Provence, and it has every attribute of a book I would not want to read, and it is so, so, so good, and I really hope it finds an audience, because it's really about religion and faith and female friendship, and it's gorgeous. Not all about vampires and zombies, though. No, vampires and zombies. I don't know why she forgot to put those in there. That's Julie Berry is the author. Is it a first novel? It is not a first novel. Um, I think she wrote All the Truth That's in Me, which was a big book. Um, And I know she's written other things, but she's new to me. And now I'm going to be delving fast into the back catalog. All right. Any others that you want to especially call out? Uh, I really love The Serpent King. Uh, Just... It's hard for me to believe that this is a first novel. It is so assured. Um, And there are three characters who narrate their own chapters, and they have such different voices. And uh, they don't seem like characters who'd be friends. So the fact that he makes us believe that they are friends uh, is great. And it's very Southern Gothic, so it's not to everyone's taste. Mm -hmm. It gets very dark, but it's also very funny, and I really liked it. And that book is by Jeff Zentner. So um, putting on your Mamala Knows Best hat here, if you were to recommend it um, to parents of teenage readers, is that like a 12 and up kind of YA, a 14 and up? 14 and up. Okay. Why? Uh, What's in there? there? Let's just be open. um, It's about getting out of your small town. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that that's something that's of more interest to older kids. There is a tragedy in it that may be too wrenching for younger readers. It's so interesting because Maria Russo, our current children's books editor, I remember so well your review for us of Wonder, where, of course, also there's some tragedy in that story. And you had questioned at the time, like, you know, is this really for 10-year-olds? Because it, it, it does get so dark. And so that's- Right. And I happened to have a nine-year-old daughter at the time, and she didn't think it was too dark. And that's proven to be the case with that yep. book. Both of my kids, kids loved love it. that book, and they can handle it. They know that there are people who suffer and they want to know yeah, more I think, about. I think especially with bullying books, I think kids know so much more than we think they do, and mm-hmm. protecting them does not do them any favors. And Maria, you are also a big fan of The Serpent King. Yeah, another. we should mention another plot in that book um, that might cause some parents to be cautious with the younger kids is that the, the main, one of the main characters' fathers is in jail for child uh, pornography, and he's also a, a preacher. He's kind of a, you know... A, hypocritical sort of evil preacher who uh, the son also needs to separate. It's not just getting out of the small town. It's getting away from a deeply dysfunctional, emotionally abusive family. Mm-hmm. And yet the book has so much music in it. I mean, you know, the author is actually a singer songwriter <laughs> in addition to having his first YA novel. So it's it's a really beautiful book. And there's another character there, who co- a girl who's a fashion blogger, who comes, who relocates to this town in Tennessee from the north. And I think a lot of the book, as as much as it is Southern Gothic, I think it's also kind of about the New South, where you have people from all walks of life kind of trying to make a new kind of community. Mm -hmm. 
and and succeeding in this book. It's interesting because I think probably listeners hearing our conversation might think, wait a minute, this is summer YA. But I think that this summer is, you know, a great time, obviously, for kind of popcorn reading. But it's also a good time for kids who are, you know, maybe rising up to middle school or to high school to think about those kind of serious issues and to mull them over right. when they're this, kind of away and, from. And The Serpent King also does have a lot of humor in it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was music and religion were threads that went through both went through all a lot of these books uh the haters is about um is also about and musicians. that's the, Jess, the new jesse andrews novel and okay people know jesse andrews because he's the author of me and earl and the dying girl okay also a movie uh it is so funny and i actually think he did an amazing job for i'm not a musician and i totally understood everything he said about music he's such a funny and descriptive writer that describing he's particularly good at describing bad music mm-hmm. and bad jazz noodling and the kids go to jazz camp in this book which is just such a great comic setup uh, this is also one that like i think we said might need a little bit of a parental warning on oh it. hell yeah <laughs> can i say hell <laughs> yes uh, here you can <laughs> great uh it is filthy. It is so gross. Uh, I discovered many, many things that my spell check would not accept as real words that are slang for disgusting things. And How uh, old are the kids in the book? Uh, I think they're high school juniors. Yeah, I think they're 16, 17. And so if you were to recommend this, what would you say? I would say high school junior would be a good (laughs) cutoff point. Yes. Yes. It's also, uh, there are three main characters in uh, I thought the the girl was the weakness, and I felt th- as though I kind of wanted to shake him and explain to him what girls are actually like. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it was so amusing that uh, it was fine. Speaking of girls, there are three books with girl in the title um, for YA readers um, that are not in this group, but that we should talk about. One is Beware the Girl. Um, the second is American Girls. And then the third is If I Were Your Girl. Do you want to talk about this, I think Maria? it's If I Was Your Girl. If I Was. I think it is. Yeah. It should be. If I, but, I, oh, but God, your grammar I is awesome. Right, we, you <laughs> don't want to correct the, the teenager's grammar. <laughs> All right. If I Was Your Girl is uh, one of the several books dealing with transgender characters um, coming out and having recently come out by Meredith Russo, no relation. Obviously, we haven't uh, read it yet. It's it's just out, but it's getting great, great responses, very sensitive. And she's also a trans woman, and she wrote a piece for The Times about using the wrong bathroom out that I thought was super powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people... Love it as a book, not as an issue book. All right. What's American Girls? Uh, American Girls is a uh, a road trip book. Uh, a, a, the character, you know, heads for L.A. from the east uh, one crazy summer. It just sounds like a great example of that teenage road trip to find yourself and figure some stuff out genre. And beware the girl. Beware that girl. Beware that girl. You just keep fixing my grammar, Maria. <laughs> well, these titles, you know, they, they're, it's the YA titles are, have to be, you know, so expressive and they have to tread on such a Beware small that ground. girl. Beware right. that girl. This is a thriller. This is a sort of posh boarding school elite People are thriller. comparing it to The Girl on the Train, yeah, which is another girl right, book. Right. For, <laughs> Definitely for not YA. for teenagers. Not for teenagers. The author... Uh, Canadian Teresa Toten, I think mm-hmm. you say it, is is uh, won the Governor General Award uh, last year for the Year of Room 13B. She's, I think, she's someone to really pay attention to. And this book, if you are looking for the more the more classic summer read, this is the one. 
for listeners who might be new to YA, um, what would you recommend they read this summer? It doesn't have to be one of these in particular, but if you were going to say start someone on like a great YA novel. I'm blindsided with this question, so I immediately went to my friend's books that I think are great. But there is um, Just One Day and Just One Year mm-hmm. by Gail Foreman are... Also, I mean, I think we all like these road trip books. There's something really, yeah. you know, it's both classical folkloric hero's journey stuff. And it's also, I think that's what we associate. It's such a resonant teenage thing. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a girl who's always been a good girl who uh, decides to just not follow the rules for a minute when she's on a horrible teen tour with an exclamation point on it uh, of Europe. And she breaks free and she has a romance with an actor that lasts one day. And then the second book is he disappears at the end and it's what happened in the year that the two of them were apart. It's more from his perspective about where he went. They're romantic and they're funny and they're so Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Shakespeare in them. Um, so if you are, you know, if you are a Shakespeare fan or if you're hoping your child will become one, there's a lot that's gonna you're gonna want to explore after reading it. Uh, yeah, I like to go with high fantasy when it comes to YA. That's sort of me, <laughs> we have like a difference of opinion. Dragon, or if there's lots of Y's in the middle of a word, I'm just like, well. All right. What about you, Maria? <laughs> well, I'm gonna go with uh, the, one of the many graphic novels, YA yes. graphic novels that are just getting better and better. There's so many fantastic ones. Uh, we could mention a previous book by one of the authors we reviewed in the summer reading issue, uh, Mariko Tamaki, this one summer. Oh, uh, yeah. And the, the art was done by her cousin, Jillian Tamaki. Um, that is just one of the most um, emotionally... Gorgeous. Uh, resonant books, again, about a summer, not a road trip, but a family vacation, a family that goes back to the same place every summer. And it's that one summer where things are changing. There's no dragon in it. No dragon. No <laughs> dragon. Right. I also want to say love. that, that Josie, my, my uh, teenage daughter took it to camp with her and it was the most popular. You know, she had a little bunk library and it was the most circulated book among the girls last year. And a counselor came up to me and said, I don't read for fun, but this book makes me want to read. You guys both have the 13-year-old daughters. Now, now 14. right. 14. Now I have uh, 13. 13. 13 and 14. But, but there's so much good fantasy for YA. We should say, if you if you haven't read uh, the Peculiar Children trilogy, uh, that is that is one that really hits home and is just uh, also beautifully written and dark. It's incredibly dark. And it has a little bit of a visual. It's got these crazy vintage uh, postcard photos in it that kind of tell the story. And um, the author of that is? Ransom Riggs. Uh, and there's more from that coming out. I think Penguin is going to do in the fall a book of all of the fairy tales from within the, the world <gasps> of Peculiar Children. So that is one that if you if you or your teenager hasn't uh, found yet is worth finding. All right. Any last recommendations from you, Marjorie, or from your daughter by proxy? This summer, I'm really hoping to finally read Dante and Aristotle Discover the Secrets of the Universe uh, by Benjamin Sienz, uh, which my daughter has been pushing on me for well over a year, which she just thinks is the most beautiful love story and just gorgeously written. Uh, you've read it, right? Maria? I have not. I would love to read that one too. Maybe I'll put that on my summer list. There you go. All right. Thanks so much, Maria Russo, our children's books editor, and Marjorie Engel, who reviewed a whole slew of YA in our summer reading issue. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Joining me now are Paul Siegel and Greg Coles to talk about what we're reading and what other people are reading. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. So let's just talk about the bestseller list quickly. What's new this week, Greg? 
A couple of good books on the hardcover fiction list. Um, starting right at the top, Justin Cronin concludes his Passage trilogy. Uh, the first two books in that were The Passage and The Twelve. The third and final book in the trilogy is The City of Mirrors. You know, it's I read those first two books, and they're like a thousand pages long <laughs> each, I think, and I don't have the time uh, to read. And, and they're super page-turnery. Um, they are not Les Miserables. Not that that's not good, but it's not a page-turner. Um, and I've, I've been on the fence. Do I continue with the uh, with the city of mirrors? Yeah, in our um, summer reading issue, uh, Vanessa Friedman looked at the city of mirrors. She liked it a lot as as a conclusion to the trilogy. There's something very kind of biblical in the sweep and the storyline of these. There's a, a young savior who's going to save all of humanity by taking on its sins. So the 12 are, in this case, they're um, vampires. Ish. Vampire-ish. <laughs> Vampire-ish, right. He, he never uses the term vampires. Yeah, no. uh, but they're clearly they're vampires. They're <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, then also new on the bestseller list this week, down at number 14, Stephanie Dandler, who was on the podcast last week, her debut novel, Sweet Bitter, um, set in a restaurant very much like Union Square Cafe, where she used to work. You know, there's another book this season um, called Bittersweet, I'm pretty sure. And I'm sort of feeling <laughs> a little bit sorry for that person, although maybe it'll be like, you know, uh, the author of Between Shades of Grey when Fifty Shades of Grey was a thing. And she'll get a little bonus push there. All right. What's on nonfiction? Uh, on nonfiction, Sebastian Younger's new book, Tribe, which uh, looks at soldiers um, and the absence of a tribal culture in American society today and where people find that. Um, so he, he looks at the military as one obvious place for that. And s- he speculates that the absence of tribal culture in American society is part of what contributes to PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, among other things. So that's new at number five. Yeah. And then at number six, um, the latest book in Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies series, uh, it's called The Patriots. It's written by David Fisher, but it's a tie-in to um, Bill O'Reilly's Fox series, Legends and Lies. About the American Revolution. Yes, it is. Okay, so what are you reading, Greg? Well, I wanted to um, put in a word for a couple of novels um, that are very different from each other. They're both debut novels, both published uh, by small indie presses, but they could not be more different. One is Martin Say's debut novel, The Mirror Thief. It is uh, a huge book. It's like 600 pages. It is um, one of these books that's uh, just a marvel of engineering and architecture. It tells three different stories set in um, three different centuries with three different versions of Venice. Um, You get Venice, Italy during the Renaissance. You get Venice Beach, California during the 1950s. You get the Venetian uh, Casino in Las Vegas during what's essentially present day. I think it's set about 10 years ago. And they all come together around the idea of mirrors uh, as a sort of mystical alchemical technology. It's partly a crime story or conspiracy story. Um, So it's got elements of Thomas Pynchon and certainly David Mitchell. You might also think of Michael Cunningham and the hours in there. And it's just, it's beautifully written and one of these big stories. The other book is so different. It's it's barely 100 pages long and it's less engineered than kind of dreamed into being. It is Max Porter's debut novel, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. You might recognize the title as a reference to Hope is the Thing with Feathers, the Emily Dickinson poem. Um, This book is about a father whose young wife has died suddenly and unexpectedly, and now his grief has manifested itself in 
um, the literal physical form of a giant crow, which is uh, basically the trickster from Ted Hughes's crow poems. And the, the father is a Ted Hughes scholar. He's working on a, a book about Ted Hughes and the crow poems. And so in the same way that Winston Churchill saw his depression as a dog, a, black literally dog, a black yeah. dog, this father is seeing his depression, his grief, literally uh, as a giant crow that Not, pays him a visit. And the yeah. crow has a voice in the book. The, the book, it's very poetic and kind of dreamlike. Um, this is your fun train reading, right? <laughs> it, it is a very fun book. It's a crazy book. The crow's voice in it is filthy, animalistic, um, but also quite clever and, and witty. And then it's also this very powerful, sad book about dealing with loss. Carl, you also have um, some sadness uh, to share <laughs> with regard to your reading. My, my, my weekly complaint session is now in session. Um, so, I mean, I've been reading regularly and I'm you know, reading for work and I'm working on my next column and, you know, constantly sort of dipping in and out of books. But I've been feeling oddly blocked. And, uh, reader's block. Reader's block, which apparently is a thing. And I remember, like, I think it was last year we ran an essay by the novelist uh, Dylan Landis and she was writing about how after her parents died, she wasn't able to read for something close to a year. And then finally, when she was able to read, she was reading books about adolescence again. So it was almost like she was to fall Putting back in love with back. books. Yeah. yeah, she had to sort of sort of become again, like become an adult again and go back to YA and stuff like that. So I've been reading, but I haven't had this feeling of plunging into a book. You know, I'm not having what Greg is talking about <laughs> with this grief um, is a thing with feathers, and I've just sort of been skating on the surface and turning the pages and nodding sagely. And sort Can of, we blame this on your pregnancy? We can blame everything <laughs> on my pregnancy right now. Everything is... is um, but so what I've been trying to do is like trying to entice myself back into... Um, story, especially in plot. So I, I, I reread a, a bunch of Tana French thrillers over the weekend, which was great. If you have, have you guys uh, yeah, read them? She she's just great, so good. Yeah. And um, she's so interesting and twisty and turny. And, you know, my memory's so shot. It's like I've never read them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm constantly surprised. And then I, I went back and read a book I, I remember loving and I hadn't read in about like 10 years, which is Disgrace by Kutseya, which I think both of you yeah, read I, I read few, it. I liked it. I, right? It's also probably been about ten years. Yeah, I really recommend going back to it because it is. So if you if you haven't read it, it's the story of this professor who becomes involved with a young student and sort of has to leave his college in disgrace, leave his position in disgrace, and he goes and he lives with his daughter who lives on this farm out in the middle of like the sort of countryside in South Africa, and she's sort of got these dogs in cages, and sort of this overwhelming menace starts to happen. She starts to be preyed upon by um, these you know, criminal sort of elements. And it's so it's one of these books that sort of looks at corruption in the man and corruption in society and corruption in the family and corruption in sort of the broader world and sort of tries to make these parallels. Um, I'm making it sound so boring and it's really <laughs> not. And it's really just like wicked and strange and very controlled. And it's very interesting. I think I, I read so much about race in America and, and sort of colonialism in India and stuff like that. And it's really lovely to see... Um, these sort of bigger historical themes treated with a very different kind of temperature, with a very different sort of, yeah, it's like a particular kind of restraint, a particular kind of sort of uh, narrative choices and strategies, which don't feel um, immediately familiar to me. Like, right, there isn't that, that sweep of like all American stories about race are these huge, fat, overstuffed novels that are sort of Faulknerian and stuff like that. But this is just like stiletto sharp. Yeah. Very short. And uh, yeah, so I think I'm. Honestly, it doesn't I feel sound you're like going to get so over your readers' block. Yes. You just read stop. a bunch of Tana French over the weekend during the terrible block period, <laughs> followed by Saya. I think you're I'm, good. I'm, I'm intolerable. I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. When, when I'm blocked, I, I just read magazine articles. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. That's what the internet well, is. Well, I also for consumed all of Twitter. So That's right. That. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Pamela. <laughs> 
Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.